0: Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well. Listeners, this is season seven, episode six of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. My name is Rick. I'm author of many books, including uh, the latest two, The Suicide Solution, which was released, uh, oh, I don't know, seven or eight months ago. It's a collaboration with Dr. Daniel Amina on uh, the undercurrents of anxiety, depression, and suicide, and, and how Jesus enters into those dark places and brings health and healing. And then before that, the Jesus Center daily, a daily devotional, all built around tasting and seeing the goodness of Jesus every day in creative ways. So, uh, it's been a while (laughs) I took, you know, what I would call an impromptu sabbatical. Uh, it just my, in my new role as executive director of vibrant faith, um, I have been, as I've mentioned in previous podcast episodes, on a pretty steep learning curve, uh, learning lots of new things and including writing large scale grant proposals, um, which is something I've never done before. And uh, just along the way, I realized my margins were getting smaller and smaller. And I just needed to take a little bit of a break from the podcast. So I'm sorry. I didn't warn you ahead of time about this huge gap, this two or three month gap here, but um, I am ready to get back in the saddle again. So here I am riding my horse. I don't think I'll take that metaphor any further. I think I've that's run out of gas right there. So this is the third episode in a new series I'm calling The Ways of Jesus. Uh, so we're just exploring um, how Jesus lived his life Uh that that's essentially to follow Jesus is to walk in his way. So what are the ways of Jesus? So, so we're really just taking a deeper dive into the heart of Jesus, just from a different direction, uh, exploring the way he lived and loved others. So, so in this episode, we're going to explore how he lived awake to the deception that was all around him. Because he was quite alert to it, um, whether it came in subtle ways, through the religious leaders, or even through his own disciples, or whether it came in obvious ways. Uh, there's an obvious deception uh, that, that uh, his enemy visited upon him in, in his temptations in the wilderness. So sometimes these deceptions were obvious, more often they were subtle, and that sort of mirrors the way our life is as well. We are surrounded ourselves by deceptions all along the continuum. Some are obvious, but most are subtle and most you know, profound and destructive deceptions are mixed in with some truth. That's why we swallow them. We swallow the truth part, not realizing there's a hook underneath there, underneath that bait. So uh, we've been focusing on past podcast episodes on our self narrative. This is a major theme in the suicide solution as well. Uh, really pursuing and exploring the story we tell about ourselves to ourselves. <laughs> That's our self narrative. All of us have one. Some of us are more aware of our self narrative than others. Um, if you're if you're aware of your self narrative, you're likely a self aware person. You understand the current. Of that little voice inside of you that is helping you to understand your world and is giving you feedback about who you are. So again, the self-narrative is the story you tell about yourself um, to yourself. And if those narratives get infected or poisoned or uh, uh, polluted with a toxin, they can lead you into captivity. And in the Suicide Solution, Daniel Amina and I talk about how uh, self-narratives that go undiscovered and unattended can eventually lead to anxiety, depression, and suicidality. So uh, we know that Jesus announced his ministry by saying, by quoting Isaiah and saying he had come to set captives free. But what did he come to set us free from? Often we think in apocalyptic terms with that, in the in the sense that he came to set us free from the penalty of hell. But actually, he came to set us free in our everyday life. The captivities that that infect the way that we live, he wants to set us free from those things. He, In another way of uh, putting this, and this is a kind of another common thread in the suicide solution, is if you think about who we are as uh, like a computer, like we have hardware and software, and they work together to create an operating computer, um, we can get bugs in our hardware, something that affects the the, the hardware of our computer which you could call your biology and we can get bugs in our software, what you might call your soul or your psychology. In either case, if those bugs go undetected and unsurfaced, um, they can eventually affect the ability of that computer to do what it's supposed to it can even destroy the computer in the end. So um, our Jesus's mission in our life is to debug our narrative he wants to set us free from the captivity of that. So um, let's let's kick off with uh, a little bit of a truth or lie exercise. So I found this kind of in, uh, interesting little truth or lie questionnaire online. I want you to, as I as I uh, tell you each one of the things on this truth or lie list, I want you to think about whether what you're hearing uh, as a common belief. Is actually true or is it false? Now, some of the things on this list are true and some are not true. Um, Some are true and some are not true. So let me go through these one by one. And I just want you to, you might even, if you're driving, listening to this, just just make your guess out loud, go all in, (laughs) Uh, invest yourself in your answer. So truth or lie, the tryptophan in Turkey makes you sleepy. Is that true or false? The tryptophan in Turkey makes you sleepy. There you go. Answer that one. Second, the five-second rule means food on the floor is safe to eat. Is that true or false? All right, number three, cracking your knuckles gives you arthritis. True or false? Number four, dogs are colorblind. True or false? Number five, humans only use 10% of their brains that true or false. Number 6. Sitting close to the TV is bad for your eyes. Is that true or false? Number 7. Shaving makes your hair grow back thicker. True or false? Number 8. Swallowed gum takes 7 years to digest. True or false? Number 9. You shouldn't go swimming right after you eat. Is that true or false? Finally, number 10, sharks can smell just a drop of blood from miles away. True or false? All right, there you have it. There's our truth or lie exercise. Maybe you can mentally calculate the percentage of those that you said were true and the percentage you said were a lie. Just do that in your head. Well, here, I'll reveal the truth about each thing on this list. Actually, every belief on this list is false. I lied to you. I know, it's really bad behavior. We used to call these white lies because a white lie doesn't really hurt anyone, but I really apologize if I hurt you just now. But every belief on that list is false. So on a scale of bad behavior from one to 10, how bad is it that I lied to you about this list with 10 being really bad and one being, oh, not bad at all. Where would you place the deception that I just led you through on that continuum? Was it really bad or is it just kind of sort of maybe bad? And you know, how much does it matter to you that I deceived you about this? Does it also undermine other things that I say to you because I was goofing around and I lied to you about this list. I think deception, once it's discovered, has a profound impact on us. Even in this silly little experiment I just took you through, um, I'd be willing to guess that that has some impact on what you think i'm saying to you even though your brain says oh yeah he's admitted that that he deceived me with this list there's still sort of this uh, leftoverness about deception so there's a famous experiment that has now been wholly debunked as unethical nevertheless researchers have looked at this experiment many times Uh, They're essentially learning from an unethical experiment. So it's been quoted and focused on in psychology textbooks. It's called the Milgram experiment. It was intended to measure the impact of obedience and deception and authority on bad or abusive behavior. So it was conducted in the 1960s by psychologist Stanley Milgram. And it was a, a series of studies on the concepts of obedience and authority and his experiments involved instructing his study participants to deliver increasingly high-voltage shocks to another actor in the room who would scream and eventually go silent as the shocks became stronger. So, so what he told people who were participating in his study is that everyone in the study was a participant and some were assigned to be teachers and some were assigned to be learners. And the teachers were the ones who were administering the shocks to the learners, but all of the learners were actors. There was no real shocks involved. Uh, the actors were acting as though they were being shocked at increasing intervals. So it was a there was a deception at the center of this whole study on abusive behavior. The goal was to test the extent of human beings' willingness to obey orders from an authority figure, even when those orders harming other people to what extent would human beings follow orders from an authority figure even if it meant hurting someone so uh so the participants the teachers were told by the experimenter to administer these increasingly powerful electric shocks to the other person and um the majority of those participants obeyed even when the sh- when the shocked person was screaming in pain so the experiment was set up to explore how seemingly good people could be coerced and deceived by an authority figure into doing very bad things. And of course there was a deception at the center of it. Um, And uh, though this experiment for obvious reasons was deemed unethical in the end, it actually was psychologically harmful for uh, some of the people who were involved in it because uh, a very high number of people, 65% of the participants actually gave their, uh, the learner person, they were shocking. They gave them a 450 volt shock, the highest shock in the experiment, which could be deadly in some cases. Uh, they, 65% of them, after being coerced and badgered by the authority figure, went ahead and did that. So this deception at the root of of this experiment because participants were fundamentally deceived um, into what into what this was all about, and the authority figure was badgering them with this deception. Um, this study has been looked at a lot. <laughs> so deception in our world is treated as truth all the time, and it's and deceptions that are propagated by authority figures have a particular traction in our lives. so um, in Matthew four, we get the iconic story of Jesus being coerced and tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It's not that far off from the Milgram experiment in the sense that he presents himself as an authority figure to Jesus and he bullies and courses him into, into following his deceptions. Um, and this happens of course, after 40 days uh, and nights of fasting and uh, it's in the desert. So Jesus is depleted in every way. And it's just before he begins his public ministry. So this is uh, in Matthew 4, um, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, no. Scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the Scriptures say he'll order his angels to protect you, and they'll hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Well, Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give it all to you, he said, if you'll kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. So there we have this obvious deception in the wilderness. So the question is, In general, what is Satan's strategy here, and why does he expect it'll work? So if we think about the the strategy here, in the first two temptations, Satan's planting um, sort of his his trademark deception, which he calls into question the character and nature of God. If you are the son of God, he says each time if you are the son of God. So he's questioning established fact. Um, He's questioning uh, God's identity. He's questioning here uh, who Jesus says he is. He's really trying to plant a weed or a bug in Jesus's self-narrative. If you are the son of God, well, prove it. Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Let's see what you can do. So you only have to prove something if the fact of it is in doubt. So here, Satan twice tries to raise the issue that something that is factually true is actually in doubt. Does that ring a bell over the last two, three, four, five years? Heard anything like that um, uh, in your everyday life? So twice Satan uses this kind of strategy um the first time he just throws it out there and jesus responds with a scripture passage so then uh the devil thinks okay well i can play that game so he takes him to the high point of the temple and says if you're the if you're the son of god jump off and then he quotes a scripture talking about how angels will protect him but he of course like common deceptions he uses that scripture passage out of context for his own purpose so in the second uh, temptation, uh, the way the devil is tempting Jesus is to use scripture out of context. He's using something that's true to propagate a deception. Hmm. Has that happened to you in the last few years? Someone used scripture itself to propagate a deception. So here's, here's Satan trying that Jesus again, responds simply by quoting scripture. Uh, something that isn't out of context and refutes what Satan has just said. And then last, the the third time around, Satan um, is essentially asserting his own authority in the world. So at this point, uh, obviously Jesus had not gone to the cross yet and had not stripped Satan of his authority. So Satan does have some authority on earth and, he's showing Jesus the fruits of that authority, in his view, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And because it's his, he says he'll give it all to Jesus if he'll just kneel down and worship him. And at that point, Jesus says, that's enough. (laughs) Now this is fundamental. And instead of just rebuking him, he quotes scripture again and says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So he just reasserts, what is fundamentally true and sends satan away so um, here we see satan's strategy is always to mix some truth with a deception he uses truth to deceive is another way of saying this and he also targets our fundamental longings in this case at the very end our longing to be worshipped to be our own god to uh, you could you could uh, kind of wrap up our desires for money, success, fame, notoriety, um, all of those things are uh, branches on the tree of self-worship. <laughs> so here Satan is throwing out the prospect of uh, worshiping him, worshiping Satan, so that Jesus gets all the glory of the world; that he, he'll give it all to him. So uh, Jesus responds, nope, I'm only worshiping God and him alone. So Jesus' strategy is always to never take the bait, to isolate and focus on the deceptive part um, that is mixed in with truth. He targets that deception that's mixed in with the truth and outs it, surfaces, names it, puts it in the light. And it works because he's not arguing with Satan. He's just simply repeating what is true back to him. Now, as we've talked before on the podcast, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the record in scripture of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Maybe the, the greatest uh, piece of discourse in human history is right there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So the first part of Matthew 5 is known as the Beatitudes, now, these are like countercultural statements about who's blessed that run counter to our expectations. So blessed are the meek, for instance. So in our, in our uh, culture, we would, uh, our culture would say blessed are the powerful, people who can pull the levers, people who have the access and the leverage. Those are the people who are blessed. In the beatitude, Jesus said, oh, contraire, <laughs> the meek. The meek are those who are blessed. So the Beatitudes, this first part of the Sermon on the Mount, is full of these countercultural statements about what we, what we think is good and successful and blessed versus what is good and successful and blessed in the kingdom of God. But the second part of Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 21 through 48, you could call that section the but-I-says. They're a kind of a complement to the Beatitudes. So you could say that the but-I-says are a kind of martial arts practice. So Jesus uses the momentum of deception against it, uh, whatever that deception is. Um, so first he quotes something that's commonly believed, and then he says, yeah, I know you believe that, but here's the truth. Here's what's actually true in the kingdom of God. So that's why there are compliments, the Beatitudes, in the Beatitudes— He's simply focusing on um, the thing that is blessed. He's not really pointing out uh, the common belief that's in tension with that that isn't correct. In the second half of Matthew five, he does that. Um, and he and he starts off each pushback with with this little phrase, but I say. Um, so he's setting up almost a poetic, rhythmic, uh, way of thinking about deceptions in our life, and he's contrasting them with the truth. So, but when I say it's a martial arts practice, I mean he's using some of the momentum of that deception against it, active pushback in this way. It's not just a strategy; it's it's a lifestyle. It's the way Jesus lives his life, um, because Jesus uh, expects coercive deception. As a common aspect of living in the world, he's asking us to, in a similar way, expect coercive deception in our world. It's simply the water we swim in. It doesn't mean that we become distrustful people and that we we just don't trust anyone because everyone's a deceiver. That's not true. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. What he meant was, don't, don't put your trust in those who are untrustworthy. So... It doesn't mean that we're not trustful people. It just means that we are awake and and aware of who we're placing our trust in. That's it. So that's just another way of saying we're we're becoming discerning people. So when we discover the truth, we trust it with our whole heart. But we test and push back to affirm that truth. We test it. That's part of what he's calling us to do. So. Let's explore this second half of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, all the but-I-says, answering three simple questions for each one. What is the deception that Jesus is targeting in this particular one? The second question is, what is the essence of his pushback? And the third one is, what, exactly, what is exactly true about his alternative to that deception? So what is the deception Jesus is targeting? What's the essence of how he pushes back against it? And what is exactly true about his alternative? And what we're going to do is is dive into this section of Matthew 5. It's verses, again, 21 through 48. So if you're not driving and you want to flip over to that, this would be helpful uh, to walk through these. We're going to start off first with teaching about anger. So here in Matthew 5, starting verse 21, and we're going to go through verse 26. You've heard that our ancestors were told, of course, this is Jesus speaking here. You've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, there's the but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in the danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. All right, three questions are, what is the deception Jesus is targeting, and what's the essence of his pushback, is the second one. And the third question is, what is exactly true about his alternative? So, the deception here, when he references that the ancestors were told you must not commit murder, if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Then the but I say says, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. So, the deception he's targeting is that these uh, secret things we hold in our soul where we don't actually carry them out. So, you're angry enough to murder someone in the moment. You know, and we could even joke about it. Oh, it made me so mad I wanted to kill him. Um, These things that we harbor inside, but don't necessarily express in the extreme outside, are still serious uh, aspects of our brokenness. Um, And he's trying to, the deception he's trying to point out here is that there are only certain ways of expressing interior realities that really should be punished or really are violations of the kingdom of God. Um, It's only the outward expression that is the violation of the kingdom of God. So we deceive ourselves when we harbor anger, resentment, uh, revenge, hatred. I just heard a friend of mine the other day say that he hated his mother-in-law. So of course he's expressing strong emotions and frustration over the way his mother-in-law interacts with him and the demands that she makes on him um, but what Jesus is saying here is that you're subject to the same kind of judgment as if you actually carried this out um, if you actually obliterated that person because the the essence the seeds the the trunk of the tree if you want to call it that of murder starts, With these extreme emotions inside of ourselves, this anger and hatred and revenge we harbor inside of ourselves is actually already growing into something ugly and brutal. And so uh, the idea that we deceive ourselves with is that we can harbor things inside and we have no accountability for those things before Jesus. And he's saying, you do, you do have accountability for those things. Those things, if left to grow, will grow into something even more serious. So the essence of his pushback is deal with what's going on inside your soul. Don't um, avoid dealing with it because nobody can see it yet. Deal with the things that no one can see yet um, early on. That's the essence of his pushback. And what's true about his alternative, which is he's asking us to to do something to address the secret truth inside. So that could be uh, if you're, if you're going to the temple to present a sacrifice and you have something, someone against something against you, you know, someone has something against you uh, leave it there first and go be reconciled that person, deal with the reality of your soul first, and then come back and sacrifice. Or if you're headed to court, uh, walking alongside your adversary, why not settle that difference first before you get to the court? Um, uh, settle the, the broken relationship that you have first if you can. All right, let's take on a, a second, uh, but I say. This one's in the next section. It's called a teaching about adultery. Um, here's Jesus starting in verse 27. You've heard that the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, there it is, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, here are three questions again. What's the deception that Jesus is after here? What's the, the second one? What's the essence of his pushback? And the third, what's exactly true about his alternative? So the deception that he's uh, targeting here is similar to the first one. So you're, you're not to commit adultery. That's what the law says. But he's saying the process of adultery has already started when you look at a woman with lust. You're you're essentially starting the process of adultery already, so wow. And what's it? What's his pushback? Uh, if your eye, even your good eye, even something that you rely on that is the best part of you, causes you to start this process of adultery inside, um, he's he's saying take extreme action, <laughs> gouge it out. Now, of course, he's being metaphorical. Um, Here, but he's he's using hyperbole to emphasize the the uh the the thing that he's urging us to do which is do something to deal with that before it grows any further um he's saying better to lose that part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell so what he's saying is if you let that thing grow um it's going to wreck your life so deal with it now um cut it off, Uh, surface the the problem, act as though the problem is severe, act as though that hidden problem is severe. Um, If it was all in the light, if your thought life was surfaced and and maybe um, it was displayed on a screen, for instance, um, well, how would you react about others being able to see what's in your thought life, he's saying, treat it that way. Because to not treat it that way is to live a deceptive life. It's to present one face while you harbor a different reality inside. And he's saying to be congruent, um, you need to deal with the beginnings of adultery in you as if everyone could see those beginnings of adultery in you, like as if they were projected onto a screen. Living congruently means that your interior life is is just as surfaced as your exterior life so uh, the, that's the essence of his pushback and what's true about his alternative is that his alternative is to live in congruence to live in the light um, Jesus said uh, as he was facing the cross he told his disciples uh, the evil one is is about to uh, is it is about to uh, go after me but Jesus says to his disciples he has nothing in me what he means by that is that there's no leverage that his enemy has there's nothing to leverage in Jesus because everything's out in the light with God so he's saying don't leave any leverage for your enemy get it all out all right let's um let's take on one more uh in the string of but I says. This one starts up in verse 31. It's called the teaching about divorce. And here Jesus says, you've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say, there it is, but I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she's been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You've also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, there's a second one, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Don't even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. <laughs> wow. So again, the three questions. What's the deception? What is the essence of Jesus' pushback? And what's exactly true about his alternative? So um, the deception that he's targeting here, um, a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. So here he's saying that uh, in, in, in the Hebrew law, a man can, uh, you know, cut off or end his relationship with his wife just by writing up a notice of divorce, and that's it. She has no recourse. Um, he has all the power. She has none. And he can treat what God has joined together as if it was simply a legal arrangement. And what Jesus is saying here is that 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 marriage, that committing of one to another is not just a legal arrangement. And remember that marriage is a picture of a kind of intimacy that Jesus wants with us. He never wants us to take our relational commitments as lightly as this. He never wants us to think about our relational commitments as transactional. Like when when it's not doing it for me, I can just end it because there's no investment here. This is a violation of what Jesus is trying to frame for us as intimate relationship, where the heart goes all in, the heart goes all in. And when the heart goes all in, the two become one. And he's saying, uh, if you treat this, this mirrored relationship differently than that, then you're violating something in the kingdom of God. It's like you're committing adultery, meaning meaning your commitments are not deep. They're not all in and they're easily broken. Now, of course, he's speaking this into a culture today um, where it's it's not like divorce is easy. It's certainly not as easy as he's describing here where a man can just fill out a form and turn it in and that's it. Um, it's obviously much more complicated and the and a man in our culture does not have this kind of uh, leverage advantage that Jesus is describing um, in relationships, but he's still saying that this mirrored relationship of intimacy, um, if you treat it as a mere transaction, um, what is to stop you treating from treating your relationship with me as a mere transaction as well? And then he transitions from this into, Uh, the making of vows and the emphasis in the law and not breaking your vows and carrying out your vows. And then the way people started to add weight to their vows was by adding descriptors or uh, conditions by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem, or even by my head. These are descriptors that are designed to add weight to the vow. And Jesus here is, is saying, don't, don't make any vows like that. Just say yes or no. Um, so what's the deception he's targeting? He's he, the deception he's targeting is that when we add a descriptor to our to our yes or our no, we are saying that our yes or no is not enough, that we have to uh, add weight to our yes or no um, by attaching it to something else. And it's almost as if we are um, using uh, some kind of metaphorical leverage to our yes or no. And what he's saying is, um, again, he's trying to target the deception that the, the assent of our yes or no is not enough, and that we have to convince another that our yes is serious and our no is serious by adding a, a weight to it, um, a guarant- guarantor. To it, I guess, is another way of saying it. And he's saying that is not living um, in the light either. If you have to do that, he's saying your yes or no are weak in the first place. Your yes should carry the weight of your identity behind it. Your no should carry the weight of your identity behind it. You don't need additional leverage besides that, because then you're then you're you're starting to um, again live one reality in the interior of your life and another reality on the surface of your life people who just say yes or no and then follow through with those things are not hiding anything they're not they don't need extra descriptors or extra weight because they're not uh, they're not trying to leverage the situation in the direction they want to go they're just simply standing on the the simplicity of their yes or no and so jesus through all of these is saying um, live your interior life in the light make it congruent so that the enemy of god has no leverage in you and the enemy of god comes to try to leverage you he always is leveraging something that's true in your interior life that has not been surfaced in your exterior life he's always leveraging that it's as if he comes to us to kill steal and destroy And he's looking for the places that we've hidden ourselves because if he can leverage those places, um, then it's a kind of a self-contained system. Then he's, uh, he's using something that we are trying to keep from others against us. And that's a closed system. And that's where he can really operate and kill and steal and destroy. So Jesus is saying, um, Live congruently, no matter how painful it is. Don't let things grow in your soul that are a soul reality, that, you, that are unexamined and unconfessed to others. Don't, don't do it, because this is exactly how your enemy wants to take leverage in your life. So uh, to close off today, let's, let's just take a risk with Jesus right now. I'd like you to just pause wherever you are and just quietly, simply, ask him this question. Jesus, what's a lie I have believed about myself and am harboring inside? Will you show me? Again, Jesus, what's a lie I have believed about myself that I'm harboring inside? Will you show me? Let's wait quietly for a moment. So if something surfaced for you in that moment, something popped into your head, recognize that what he's doing here is he's doing what someone who deeply loves you would do. He sees the consequences of what's starting to grow in your interior life. He sees where that's headed, and he knows that if it can be surfaced now, all of the destructive consequences of that growing into fruition will be avoided. So he's inviting you to embrace and own whatever is surfaced. So I'd encourage you, if something did surface for you there, find a way to drag that from the darkness into the light. I'm not telling you how to do that. Just saying, if something surfaced for you, find a way to drag that from the darkness into the light, whatever it is. That will take the fuel rod out of the enemy of God's um, mission in your life. Um, It'll take the leverage away from him that he's trying to use. um, And it will uh, open you up and um, clean out your soul in a way that uh, surfaces your true identity, allows you to live out of that true identity. When you have baggage like this in the darkness, it weighs down your identity. It keeps you from being who you were meant to be. So if something did surface for you, just find a way to drag that thing into the light. Well, everyone, this is, again, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's Season 7, Episode 6. This is a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.